It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! And friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a traumatic time of temerity in a tremulous world. <laughs> that's a lot of tea. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you that's the truth. That's very good. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 750, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger with a calling, and that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. I am Nurse Amy. I am also known as Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the most is so smart, Albert Einstein refuses to take pictures with her. Well, You'll never see them in the same picture, I promise you. <laughs> yeah, that would be a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> together, we are the Watchers on the Wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls Apart. Apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a crotchety crocodile? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, will you be there, though, to pick up the pieces when somebody breaks your heart? No. And or, or leg or arm and be medically self-reliant enough to help if help isn't on the way? Well... You can save a life, I say, if you try, if you have the knowledge, the supplies, and you listen to us. Well, I just want to say one thing. It's probably easier to fix an arm and a leg that's broken than a heart, honey. True that. So don't go breaking my heart. And when somebody that? breaks no, your heart. Don't go breaking my oh. heart. Oh, okay, there we go. <laughs> you, you hit the wrong generation there. <laughs> so what up, Buttercup? We learn yes. as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you 
Exactly how. Absolutely. Contact us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group with lots of amazing people sharing information. Survival, Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple Facebook pages. One of them's Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us at our personal page, which is Joe Alton, MD. Ah, uh-huh. true, true. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Our YouTube channel is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, all one word, and we have a video cast at AroundTheCabin.com the first and third Wednesday of every month, and that's um, Campfire Chat, right? Yeah, AroundTheCabin.com forward slash. Uh, uh, forge slash campfire. That's campfire. Right. That's right. Forge slash campfire. Campfire, exactly. So when you go to aroundthecabin.com, you can just push on campfire, and they have lots of live shows. Or you can go on to our Wednesday, their Wednesday schedule. You'll always find our video cast. Yes, and be sure to join the chat room because we actually give prizes, oh, and yeah. we'll talk to you. <laughs> I am monitoring the chat room. Usually, Dr. Bones is chatting away while I am chatting away on the Actual chatting chat chatter. room. She's a chatting, we're <laughs> You're chatting, talking. Uh, chatting chatterers. Yes, that's right. Well, we're doing a lot of communication. That's right. We'll that's say right. it. We'll put it that way. Well, that is a lot, but you know <laughs> what? It's not everything. You can check out our articles in leading magazines like Survival Quarterly, Backwoods Home, Prepare, Survivalist, Prepper and Shooter, Survivor's Edge, American Survival Guide. Wow. Wow. As well as links... <laughs> From over a thousand great preparedness websites wow. throughout the internet or magazines. It's time, by the way, to say a great big thank you to all the great networks that carry our show, especially the Prepper Broadcasting Network, mm-hmm. the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Survival Central Radio, Shake and Wake Radio, wow, and of course, as you just mentioned, Miss Amy, aroundthecabin.com. And you can, of course, listen to our archive radio audio podcast on blogtalk.com. BlogTalkRadio.com as well. Uh, lastly, we want to uh, thank our listeners for their kind words, support for our mission. That's to put a medically prepared person in every family. And we want to thank you also for filling those holes in your medical storage by checking out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. Nurse Amy's offering free shipping on orders $50 or over over the next month or so, and that includes kits that weigh more than 20 pounds. That's a big savings. Wow. It is a huge savings. That's right. So It is more than $50 to ship those, and if it's going to Washington, it can be close to 100 guys. This is a big, big savings, I promise you. And I always ship priority with signature, so lots of money saved. For you guys. (laughs) Sounds great. By the way, don't buy this stuff from us if you've got the time to put together all of this on your own. But you know what? If you don't get a kit designed by an actively licensed doctor and a nurse practitioner, why not? Right? Now, you know, a significant factor in the quality of medical care given in a survival setting is the level of cleanliness of the equipment used. We talk about this uh, not uncommonly and talked about it, I think, a few months ago, maybe six months ago. Uh, on the podcast, uh, you may have heard of the words sterile. You may have heard, heard of the words clean. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in ideal conditions, that we want things to be both. But they're actually two different things. And the question is, do you know the difference? When it comes to medical protection, sterility means the complete absence of microbes. And st- sterilization destroys 
all microbes on a medical item to prevent disease transmission associated with its use. Now, to achieve this, we want to practice what we call sterile technique, which involves special procedures using sometimes special solutions and the use of sterile instruments, towels, dressings, etc. Now, sterile technique is especially important when dealing with wounds in which the skin has been broken and the soft tissue has been exposed, the subcutaneous fat and other areas, anything below the level of the dermis, the thick, the, the deep layer of the skin. Now, of course, it's very difficult to achieve a sterile environment if you're in the field or in an austere setting or remote location. And in this case, you might only be able to keep things clean, but clean techniques do work. They, they're very reasonable and they concentrate on prevention of infection by reducing the number of microorganisms transferred from one person to another or to equipment uh, by your supplies and, and by the ways that you deal with your uh, hygiene and instruments, things like that. Yeah, now, of course, meticulous hand washing with soap and water, that's the cornerstone of a clean field. Now, if you're going to be medically responsible for the health of your people in a survival setting, you got to strike a balance between what's optimal, and that's sterility, and what is sometimes achievable, right? That's clean. So when you're dealing with a wound or a surgical procedure, you have to closely guard your work area. And that We call that the sterile field. And that is isolated to prevent contact with anything that might allow germs to invade it. This area is lined with sterile drapes arranged to allow a small window where the medical treatment will occur. And although there are commercially prepared drapes that are that have opening, openings already in them, we call them uh, fenestrated drapes, uh, just using a number of towels in a sort of a, a t square fashion will achieve pretty much the same purpose as long as the towels are clean or, or, or preferably sterile. Now, the first step is to thoroughly wash any item that you plan to reuse before you sterilize it. So you have to cl clean an item before you try to sterilize it. So you need a soft plastic brush uh, to remove blood, tissue particles, other contaminants that can make sterilization more difficult. So I bet you didn't think that a soft plastic brush was with medical supply, but indeed it really is. Now you might also consider gloves, aprons, eye protection to guard against splatter, also part of your medical storage. Now, the question of how to sterilize your medical supplies. I mean, there are a number of ways you can accomplish this, and there is, are just all sorts of different ways, and I have just found a new one. So let's talk about some of the ways that we've talked about before first, and then we'll talk about the new one that we found. Uh, simply placing them in gently boiling water for 30 minutes, that would be a reasonable strategy. Believe it or not, that doesn't eliminate some bacterial spores, which are sort of bacteria-to-be that become activated once they're in a certain environment, they're usually a host, and cause... Uh, the boiling, unfortunately, can cause issues with rusting over time, especially on very sharp instruments. Whenever you boil an instrument, always have it with its uh, open, like open the scissors or open a clamp so that you're getting all of the, uh, the entire surface area of the instrument. Um, soaking them in bleach, or either sodium or calcium hypochlorite is, is a good way to do it. 15 to 30 minutes in a... Uh, one percent uh, or a ten or uh, ten percent solution of bleach that'll disinfect instruments, but of course you don't want to do it for much more than that because rusting will look, rusting will occur if you do it for more than let's say about thirty minutes. Now, and you can actually see that if you ever use bleach to clean your 
uh, bathtubs or your sinks, the drain, the little rim around the drain will actually cause some rusting. And we've seen that in our bathtub. And I yes. need to have that little ring actually replaced, possibly the whole drain, because of bleach. Because yep. I love bleach. <laughs> right. well, and that's true. So I left it in too long, and, and I saw the results. And don't leave bleach in your bathtub drain areas for very long either. So your instruments, if you are going to clean them in bleach, rinse them in sterile water afterwards. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some people will soak their instruments in 70% alcohol. You might see your dentist does that or your or uh, your family doctor does that. And if you do that for about 30 minutes, that's actually a pretty reasonable option. And sometimes you can put it, sometimes there are metal trays that you fill with alcohol and you put them in there. I actually saw somebody actually ignite one uh, once that's saying that they thought it would be a great way to do it. And I, I'm sure it would work. I'm sure the fire itself would work. And I'm sure the alcohol itself will do the so job. So we're talking about scissors flambe? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, I mean, you could hey, do cool, one or the other. One. That was awesome. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, You are just too much. Uh, let's see. There are chemical solutions that exist that are specially made. For the purpose of high-level disinfection, not necessarily sterilization, but disinfection, in the absence of heat. And uh, something very important, uh, I think, if you have items that are made of plastic, is to use solutions, things like uh, Cidex, uh, that's C-I-D-E-X, if you don't know about it. It's a a trade name for a solution with... uh, I have a gallon of that right here. Thalaldehyde and glutaraldehyde as the active ingredients. We actually have Cidex Plus. Cidex Plus, right. Which is the 28-day solution. Well, so you can actually leave that in a container for 28 days and add more instruments to it. Exactly, that's right. So it's actually a, a, a great great because it, you're allowed to use it more than once, which I think is really good. You would soak the instruments overnight for about 10 to 12 hours. And that'll give you a, a, an acceptable level of disinfection for survival purposes i just want to explain one thing about the cidex plus is it has an activator vial and so what you're doing is you're putting this activator vial which is a liquid into the solution container and you're shaking it well well and once you activate it you have to write the date on the outside because right. then this entire container is only good for 28 days. Right. So what we but 28 would... days isn't so bad. No, it's not. But you're using your entire container here, and this is um, huge. So what we would have gallon, to do yeah. is uh, use a portion of the Cidex Plus liquid and a portion of the Cidex activator and figure out uh, how much to to join these two so we don't mm-hmm. have to use the entire solution right. all at yes, once. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, so, there's some kind of proportion. So you yeah, just we would just have to figure out how, ma- how many ounces in here. There's um, and how many ounces in there? It says 158 grams. So we just have to, it's probably a four-ounce bottle. Yeah, it's a four-ounce bottle. Definitely a four-ounce bottle. So just figure out the portions. And it says to mark the date so that you know. And just like you were saying, blood and other bodily fluids must be thoroughly cleaned. Right from surfaces um, before proceeding and thoroughly clean rinse and rough dry devices before immersion in Cidex Plus solution. Clean and rinse hollow instruments before filling with Cidex solution. And you're going to leave them in. I mean, the bottom line is you need to rinse it 
you need to clean and rinse everything before you put it in the in the solution that theoretically will sterilize it or or completely disinfect it. Yeah. Now, I, as an alternative to Cydex Plus. Oh, just uh, make sure you use gloves. That's one big thing. Yeah, I that's probably to a good idea because I'm sure this is uh, irritating. Protective eyewear, sure. goggles, mm-hmm. uh, mask, and and probably you know some good gloves is an excellent idea for safety. That's right. Now, uh, another option is six uh, percent, not three percent, which mm-hmm. is what you get at the the local pharmacy, but six to seven percent. Hydrogen peroxide for 30 minutes. That is some strong stuff. That is strong stuff, and it will kill bugs. So that is an other option for you. Might get be less it on expensive. Your skin. <laughs> yeah. Even if you leave three percent hydrogen peroxide, if you put a couple drops on your hand and leave it on for 10 minutes, it actually burns. I mean, you will have a burn there. It is really, really um, toxic to your skin. So be careful. With hydrogen peroxide, especially at that strength. And we're hoping it's toxic to the microbes It as is well. toxic to the... <laughs> cytotoxic. Go. Yes, there you go. <laughs> toxic to your skin cells. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else? Ovens uh, are also an option. If you, have pa- if you have power, you know, use a typical oven, wrap instruments in aluminum foil, put them in metal trays, and uh, use medical... I mean, you're only able to deal with medical metal instruments that way. Right. But uh, if you... Uh, wrap them up in aluminum foil, put them in metal trays before putting in the oven, uh, heat it to about 400 degrees for 30 minutes, uh, and I think that would work just fine as well. If you can't get it quite that hot, you know, if you only get it to 325, then you can do it for about two hours. I mean, basically, uh, it just has to be hot enough to kill the microbes. And and microwaves also can be, have been used to sterilize instruments, but those require power. So the probably the best way to guarantee sterility in an austere setting would be a pressure cooker. Uh, hospitals use a type of pressure cooker called an autoclave that uses steam to clean instruments, and uh, not just instruments, surgical towels, bandages, all sorts of stuff. And all modern medical facilities clean their equipment with this uh, the autoclave that I'm talking about. I, I certainly hope so, at least. Right, and we also, when you use the autoclave, you put a special indicator in the package so that when the packages are removed, and I know this because I worked in Central Supply Resource uh, when my first year of nursing. And so you put the indicator in, you close the package up, and it will seal itself in the sterilizer and indicate that it is sterile. Right. It's, uh, it's a pretty awesome device to have. I mean, we had one in the office, uh, and... You can't go without it. I mean, the truth of the matter is. Absolutely. So, But the issue is, is you need power to be able to run those things. Now, if you have a pressure cooker as right. part of your supplies, there that you will go. help you to approach the level of sterility that's required for minor surgical procedures. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, a pressure cooker isn't easy to lug from place to place, so it's best for those who plan to stay in place in a disaster scenario. Now, what you do is you wrap up your instruments and... Uh, you put them on a steaming tray inside the pressure cooker with about an inch and a half of water, whatever it is that would be below the level of the of the actual right. steaming tray. Right. Let's just be tray. clear: you're not soaking the yes. instruments in Using the water. Using steam, not water. Right. Exactly. The instruments sit above the water level, right? So they're not submerged in the water. Exactly. You just want to be clear about that. Put your pressure cooker together and get it to. 
15 PSI for, or 20 PSI for uh, 25, 30 minutes and your instruments are sterile. And one thing I recommend is you put some tongs or forceps or some sort of clamps in there. You will take out those clamps first after you let things cool off a bit. And then you can use those tongs or forceps, which have been sterilized. Touch them with hopefully clean or sterile gloves. Don't touch the instruments. Use those tongs. And then drop those into uh, food saver bags. And you can seal those. So at least you can maintain, you know, as much sterility as possible. Unless your food saver bags have been rinsed with bleach, they're not going to be exactly sterile either. I mean, everything that you touch or is exposed to air can get um, recontaminated. So, or or contaminated again. Um, So you really have to keep it away from air as much as possible. And don't touch surfaces that have not been sterilized. So what we've come up with basically is we've come up with all sorts of different methods that you can use that are probably good to disinfect, you know, get rid of most of the microorganisms, make Mm -hmm. sure they're clean. Sometimes make, it will make, it will actually sterilize an instrument, but they're a little more difficult to either lug around, like lugging around a pressure cooker, for example, or, or a microwave oven. Right. I got or, one in my pocket here. <laughs> exactly. Or you may not have the ability to make a fire or uh, or not want to make a fire because of the, the smoke that it would cause. Or, or or one other reason or another. You may not have gallons of, of certain cleaning solutions or even, or even bleach. So there has to be a way. And indeed, the U.S. Army uh, Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease... Uh, was wanting to test field expedient, what they call cost-effective methods to uh, decontaminate and sterilize and even package surgical instruments in an austere setting. And this is something that uh, I didn't make up on my own, believe it or not. Uh, uh, this is actually part of a medical journal. And we I belong to a organization known as the Wilderness Medical Society. It's mostly doctors, but there are people that are not doctors there too. And lots of PAs most of and the practitioners time, right. too. <laughs> and most of the time, most of the time it's uh, a great place to find uh, medical conferences that are in ski resorts. <laughs> I'll say that much. But <laughs> but that's not why I am a member of it. I really like the kind of work they're doing. And they have a journal. It's called Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. And they actually do a lot of things that we write about. And uh, a, a lot of the stuff that that we have mentioned over the years actually has been tested uh, in, the, in the pages, in between the covers of this magazine and and sometimes after we recommend it but Mm -hmm. um it's good that it actually that some of the stuff that we mentioned actually does work now in this particular case we're looking at things that they're doing and so what they wanted to do is they wanted to use uh some scrub material uh ultraviolet light and they wanted to have vacuum sealing now this is a brand new novel way to decontaminate 
surgical instruments. Mm -hmm. And there are different ways to do this. There were four different methods that were being used to try to sterilize instruments. One was to scrub the instrument with chlorhexidine. Chlorhexidine is also known as Hibiclens and is a great way to clean your instruments. So first you scrub your instruments with your chlorhexidine and one group of uh, research or one research group actually did the very least and wanted to see what that does in order to sterilize and a percentage of sterilization. Well, they weren't thinking they were going to get much, but believe it or not, just scrubbing with chlorhexidine and then taking an ordinary commercial vacuum sealer, uh, either vacuum, either a battery-powered or one that you can um, connect to a generator, just by scrubbing with chlorhexidine and by vacuum packing, you got 99.9% sterility. In other words, they took instruments. They inoculated those instruments with staph, with E. coli, with all sorts of nasty bugs. And then they scrubbed it with chlorhexidine and they vacuum sealed it. And what that gave uh, gave them was a 99.9% elimination of microorganisms. Now... That is great, but you want to have really 100% elimination. And if you get, interestingly enough, a UV sterilizer, and there are wands, W-A-N-D, wands that you can use that actually emit UVC light, ultraviolet light, ultraviolet C light. They use them on uh, uh, car seats or airplane uh, seats. Uh, they just wave them over it and it kills the bugs. As a matter of fact, in our aquariums, we've used UV sterilizers for years and it kills the bugs there as in the water. And so they actually have battery-powered versions or very portable versions. These are probably about 60 bucks, 70 bucks, 100 bucks up to. And all you have to do to achieve 100% sterility, according to the study, was scrub the instrument beforehand have it hang it, let's say from a hang from a hook or a hanger of some sort that had also been scrubbed, and then you just pass the wand over it at a four at a distance of four inches for forty five seconds, and lo and behold, one hundred percent sterility for contaminated instruments, one hundred percent, and so. If you can get yourself some chlorhexidine, sometimes it comes with scrub with the brushes as well. You can just get the liquid itself by the gallon. Get uh, and have brushes that you can use, and you can you can scrub your hands. You can scrub the instrument for 99.9% protection. You can just use the instrument right away. And if you have the UVC wand, you can go ahead and you can. Wave it over there for, from four inches distance for 45 seconds, and you have 100% ser- sterility, and that is incredible for a field hospital or uh, situation. It really is. And for, with, especially with something that doesn't weigh a lot, and it's easy to deal with. Now, if you're not going to use it right away and you vacuum seal it, then, well... 
I think that you're going to wind up having 100% sterility too. I mean, it's not going to be less sterile uh, if you put it appropriately, uh, sterilely, in other words, from the the edge of the, the hook and just dump it into the bag and then vacuum seal the va- bag or you have 100% sterility as well. And then it'll last a good long time. How long, they don't know as of yet. But this is, an, I think, an excellent additional option for you. It certainly is... Uh, a way to think a little bit out of the box. People very rarely would think of using a UV wand to sterilize uh, medical instruments or at least didn't really know if that would actually happen. And now I'm here to tell you that the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease says it does. And so that's what I want you to make sure you have some chlorhexidine. I want you to get a UVC wand if you think you're going to be there as a medically responsible person in a long-term survival setting. So there you go. We're going to take just a short break. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 600 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Along with my wife, nurse practitioner Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, with over 200 five-star reviews. A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness in everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you did. And we're back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Well, we were just talking about how to sterilize your instruments, and the reason why you want to sterilize your instruments is because you don't want to develop infections in soft tissues that you're working in. Now, any soft tissue injury carries with it a degree of risk when it comes to infection, right? I mean, anytime you break the skin, that's your armor, then you have a chance that bacteria or other things that don't belong inside your body can get into it. Now, I mean, right now, because we have antibiotics, infections from minor wounds and insect bites, things like that, are they're easy to treat today. With, But without them, even small infections are going to enter the circulation and they could become life-threatening. And so, as I've mentioned a million times before, Uh, Antibiotics are going to be precious commodities for you, the medic. You should only make sure you only dispense them when absolutely necessary, that you're in charge of that because uh, they have been misused and they are being misused today, not only by physicians, but by the agriculture industry through their excessive use in livestock. And uh, apparently the uh, statistics say that 80% of antibiotics aren't given to humans, they're given to livestock not even to treat infection, but just to speed up growth and get them to market sooner. I don't think they really know how that happens or why that happens, but indeed it does. Now, anytime you care for a wound, there's always a chance that an infection will occur. Now, an infection of the soft tissue, the skin, or below the superficial level of the skin, uh, that is called cellulitis. Uh, the skin, by the way, has two layers. as has a superficial layer called the epidermis. That's what you're looking at right now when you look at your skin. And the deep layer, which is called the dermis, which is thicker and provides protection. 
Below that, you have subcutaneous fat, you have muscle, you have tendons and ligaments, bones and all that kind of stuff, not to mention blood pressure and uh, blood vessels and nerves. Now, cellulitis, an infection of the skin or or under the skin, is easy to deal with in normal times, but it's going to be an epidemic in the aftermath of a major disaster. The sheer number of people are going to get injured by doing a bunch of stuff that they're not used to doing, that is going to be a big problem, especially unsanitary, unsanitary conditions. These wounds are going to become infected, and the end result is that infection may may go from being just local under the, under the skin and go into the bloodstream, become something called septicemia. And once that happens, you can have all sorts of bad things. I mean, you get infections of the bone, that's called osteomyelitis, an infection of the spinal cord uh, coverings, that's called meningitis, or inf- infection of the brain, that's called encephalitis. All sorts of, all sorts of crazy things can, things can happen that can end a person's life. Now, the funny thing is that the bacteria that cause cellulitis, they're on your skin right now. I mean, normal inhabitants of the surface of your skin include uh, staph, uh, group A streptococcus. Uh, then they do generally, most, most of these don't do any harm until the skin is broken itself and they enter deeper tissues because they don't belong there. They, because they don't belong there, they start causing inflammation and you develop an inf- infection and and all the issues that occur with, uh, along with it. Now, conditions that cause cellulitis include any injury that breaks the skin, as I mentioned previously, but that could be anything from a mosquito bite to a, a bullet wound. Um, surgical incisions can cause them too. I, I've seen a lot of operations where people have ended up with infections in the incision. Uh, ulcers from chronic illness, uh, such as diabetes, uh, occur in the skin because of damage to nerves and things like that, and those things can get infected and, and uh, have cellulitis. Uh, varicose veins can become inflamed. In those cases, we call them phlebitis or thrombophlebitis if a blood clot forms. Um, there are other reasons that you might get uh, cellulitis that are related to your immune system. There are some steroids and other medications that affect the immune system that wind up giving you a higher chance for that. And of course, anything that causes you to use needles that might be in, <laughs> dirty, like intravenous drug use, that is a high risk factor for cellulitis. Now, the signs and symptoms of this infection are very simple. You're just uncomfortable in the area of in the in the area of the infection itself. You may have fever and chills. You have a general ill feeling. You'll be fatigued. Uh, you may have muscle aches near the area. Uh, that uh, it'll the area will become red, and the redness will spread, especially toward the torso. Uh, the whole area that is infected is going to be hotter than the area of the infection compared to non-affected areas. So, uh, the area becomes swollen as well, it becomes shiny. There may be a sensation of tightness in that area, and of course, it, you might have drainage as uh, pus ac- accumulates in a part of the infection. So there's all sorts of stuff that can happen in cellulitis that can look pretty darn terrible. Uh, other symptoms that you might 
see with cellulitis. You might see hair loss at the site of infection. You might see joint stiffness caused by swelling of tissue over joints like a knee or an elbow or shoulder, uh, nausea and vomiting, things like that. I mean, the body can resolve cellulitis can resolve this kind of infection entirely on its own, but usually you wa- you will use antibiotics as well, whether they're oral, whether they, they're slathered on the skin, or whether they're intravenous. Most of the time, cellulitis will go away if you have a 10 to 14 day course of therapy with some kind of medicine, medicine or antibiotic in the penicillin uh, the uh, the cephalosporin, Keflex, uh, erythromycin families, those are all good. Amoxicillin and ampicillin are particularly good penicillins that will work for that. If the cellulitis is in an extremity, it is very, very useful to keep that extremity elevated. That, I think, is a, 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 good, a good thing because it will allow that area to drain. Now, if the cellulitis <clears throat> is... Um, coming to a head, we call that an abscess. An abscess is a type of cellulitis. It's essentially just a pocket of pus. And what you need to have is, uh, by the way, pus is the debris left over from your body's attempt to eliminate an infection. So it's basically your white cells, your red blood cells uh, that you have in your blood uh, that go and try to, the white cells particularly try to fight infection, so they're fighting, they're on a battlefield. That, that, that pimple is a battlefield, and you have white cells that are casualties, red cells that are casualties, and you get live and dead germs that are on the battlefield, and you have inflammatory fluid on top of it all. Now, if an abscess isn't caused by an infected wound or a diseased tooth, it's possible that it might have originated in a cyst, and you see those on uh the skin a lot. A skin uh, a cyst is a hollow structure filled with fluid, and it can easily be on the skin. It's on a bunch of other things. You could have it on your ovary or other other places like that. And there are various types that can become infected and form abscesses. There's a sebaceous abscess, uh, which is a skin gland that's often associated with hair follicles. They can uh, form a cyst there. And, produce, and this cyst produces this oily material called sebum, and that is part of what you might see in uh, uh, blackheads and things like that. Uh, inclusion cysts occur uh, after surgeries in some cases. Skin lining gets trapped in deeper, layer, deeper layers as a result of trauma or, or in, uh, surgical incisions, and they can actually continue to grow skin cells even though they're under the skin now and they form a cystic structure there's a pilonidal cyst and the pilonidal cysts are located over the area of the tailbone and they're due to some weird uh glitch that occurred during fetal development and what it does is they continuously fill up they become infected because they're near the anus and they sometimes require intervention Now, the body's attempt to cure an infection is a good thing, but abscesses and boils have a tendency to wall off infections, which makes it hard not only for the bacteria to get out and go into the rest of the body, it's a good thing, but uh, the bad thing is that it makes it hard for medications like antibiotics to penetrate. So as such, you might have to intervene by performing a procedure. And to deal with an abscess, a route has to be forged for the evacuation of pus and the easiest way to facilitate this is to place moist warm compresses over the area that's going to help bring the infection to the surface of the skin 
It forms a head and hopefully drains spontaneously. It'll pop and drain spontaneously. And we call this ripening the abscess. The abscess goes from being firm to being soft. They call that flocculence. I don't expect you to remember that. <laughs> and have and have a whitehead pimple at the likely point of exit. That even happens in the jaw where a tooth abscess would show up as a swelling, a red swelling with a sort of pimple-looking thing there. That's where the drainage is going to occur. Now, if the abscess fails to drain by itself over a few, day, over a few days, you have to open it possibly, with a procedure we call incision and drainage, or IND. Uh, and first, what you do here is you apply some ice to the area, if you have it, to help numb the skin. Uh, you can use a lidocaine if you have that. Uh, use it carefully. There are issues with lidocaine, which we've talked about before. Uh, then, using the tip of a scalpel, a number 11 blade I think would be best for this particular purpose, pierce the skin over the abscess where it's closest to the surface. The pus should drain out freely. Your, your patient will probably feel, by the way, they'll probably feel relief immediately because you're releasing the pressure of all that material that's straining against the walls of that abscess. And so you want to clean that out. You want to irrigate that out as much as possible. Drain as much of that, uh, of that material out. And that is going to be very useful. You want to apply some antibiotic ointment to the skin surrounding the incision you made, cover it with a nice clean bandage, and many times you want to put a little drain there. Some of you might want to put a little gauze there dipped in iodine and, and stick it inside that abscess and allow it to allow it to uh, pull drain. out or wick. Yes. It's sort of like a wick. It, it it will pull out the fluid. Exactly. From the says so it won't fill back up and close which is great now raw and processed honey is fine <clears throat> to put on the skin tea tree oil is fine to put on the skin lavender oil also are useful things that you could put on the skin now the tea tree uh, some people do have a little bit of sensitivity to it you may want to do that um, half and half with some olive oil or uh, coconut, coconut oil, oil would be fine yeah, awesome uh, that that is a good point. <laughs> now, you. incision and drainage uh, is helpful for dental abscesses as well, but don't expect that it will save the overlying tooth. Right. Usually, when an abscess occurs, because the tooth has the nerve that goes to the tooth has been damaged, tooth may already be dead. And of course, we talked in the past about how to extract the tooth, and of course, we'll do that in the future as well. Okay. Well, thank you. Dr. Bones, for all your awesome information. And we're going to take a little turn to the right and go to discussing some natural remedies. And I have my garden growing now. It's South Florida. And this is the season to plant. And a lot of times what I'll do when I'm doing my annuals is I will also plant um, perennials so that I can have food that is going to maybe be harvested in a year or maybe a couple of years. I've planted asparagus, um, you know, so there are just some things that you want to get in the ground as soon as possible because they don't produce food immediately. And one of those things that I've planted is ginger. It's something that probably all of us have taken in one form or another, so we're going to talk today about uh, cultivating and harvesting. We're going to talk about how to use it and some precautions and not only cultivation and harvesting, but some growing habits. And 
can you plant this? So it's going to depend on where you live. But let's talk about what ginger looks like and what it is. It's a um, perennial, like we discussed, that reaches a height of about 20 inches. Its linear and lace-shaped leaves closely hug the stem. They're about seven inches long and an inch or so wide, narrowing to a slender tip. So if you have an idea of what ginger looks like, and you can look this up on the internet right now, get an idea, because if you need to find it in someone else's garden, you should know what it looks like. And it's pretty easy. Once you've seen ginger, um, it's very easy to recognize. Uh, the greenish yellow flowers have dark purplish lips and they crowd into a club-like spike on a flowering stalk. Many cultivated varieties rarely flower. So you may not see these flowers, you may only see the green leaves. Uh, most of the flowering plants are grown for several years as tropical perennials before a bloom even appears. It's the rhizomes the underground stems, which are not the roots, but they're underground stems that thicken up, that, that is the part that we use for medicine. They smell really good. They're thick with branching lobes, and they vary in size and shape depending on the cultivated variety. So where can you grow these? Ginger has been cultivated in tropical times, tropical areas for ancient times, since ancient times. I mean, forever and ever that we know there has been ginger. Um, but they're not exactly sure where it arose from. There are actually no wild forms of ginger known in tropical Asia. So they're just cultivating it. They think it might have originated in India and spread throughout Asia um, before recorded history. So we've basically established that unless you live in a humid, either subtropical or tropical area, it's going to be kind of difficult to grow ginger. And you can't really get those kind of growing conditions within a house that's either heated or cooled because you're going to lower the humidity. This would have to be something that you would have a specific greenhouse that had a lot of humidity, that had a certain uh, temperature that remains that temperature throughout the year. So we're talking about a really specific environment here. But if you're in that environment, you can actually just go to your grocery store and get the ginger rhizomes. Look for some that have buds. There'll be um, just a, a little nub sticking out of the rhizome. And some of these ginger rhizomes have several little buds on them, which is great because you'll get more plants and you want to just plant that into some nice rich soil it likes sunlight it's not real particular um, about uh, nutrients or or watering if it's out in the natural area if you do have the greenhouse you're going to have to keep it watered because um, obviously it's not getting rain so regular watering um, regular nutrition I use organic fertilizers because I am doing raised beds so I need to give the plant some food and uh, it will pop up within about two weeks it, they grow really quickly if the buds are there so um, give it good water give it lots of food uh, give the humidity and keep it in a warm condition it does like sunny so again if you're up north and you do have this awesome grow room or grow house 
or greenhouse, you're going to need to make sure that you have grow lights also because in the winter, a lot of times you have cloudy, overcast days and it likes sunny conditions just like we have here in South Florida. So you will see the buds in about two weeks come up, the shoots from the ground, and it's usually harvested about nine months after planting. And again, you're going to use the fresh rhizome to uh, make your herbal remedy. And the therapeutic uses are for motion sickness, morning sickness, nausea and vomiting, inflammation, and coughs and colds. And in herbal medicine, we use ginger mostly for treating indigestion and nausea. And, And that's the traditional use. This is what our mothers gave us when we all felt sick. What did they reach for? Oh, we have to go get some ginger ale. Or if your mom really did study herbal medicine, she might have made you some fresh ginger tea. Now, this is really good for pregnancy motion sickness because when you're pregnant, you don't want to take any medication that you don't have to. So you don't want to get a pharmaceutical anti-nausea pill if you don't have to. So ginger can give you that nice, gentle relief make you feel a little better so you can get some food in there and feed that baby and grow nice and healthy, healthy baby. If you've had chemotherapy, um, it's also very gentle for your stomach. You want to do a weak ginger tea. You don't want to do a really strong ginger tea. So that's something that um, you should consider. Again, uh, they've done studies that showed if you used ginger before you had chemotherapy that it reduced nausea and the use of nausea medications by 40%. So it doesn't completely get rid of it, but it reduces it enough that it's tolerable. So that's great. Ginger is also being investigated for reducing the inflammation and pain of arthritis. Human studies have shown that ginger relieves osteoarthritis pain in the knees better than a placebo, but not quite as well as ibuprofen. So how do you take it? Sip a cup of hot ginger tea on a cold winter night, and you'll appreciate the warming properties of ginger. It also improves circulation by gently opening the blood vessels in the hands and feet. Ginger tea not only warms your toes, but may keep you from getting sick. Yay! Antioxidants. Anything we can do to keep from getting those colds and flus in the winter. So take some ginger tea every day and you just might feel better. If you want to make the fresh ginger tea, slice one inch of ginger fresh into small pieces. Simmer in two cups of water on low heat for 15 minutes. Drink after you've strained it one to three cups per day for coughs and colds. And to increase circulation. Now, if you're using dried ginger, pour one cup of boiling water over a quarter to a half teaspoon of ginger powder and steep for 10 minutes. Pour the liquid tea off and discard the powder. Drink one cup after meals for gas or bloating or even nausea. If you happen to have some capsules, you can take 250 to 500 milligram capsules two to three times a day. And there are extracts that uh, generally are used for the osteoarthritis relief. Now, the precautions. Adding ginger to the diet is safe for young and old. Ginger may possibly cause mild heartburn. Again, you might want to make that tea a little bit weaker if you're sensitive. Pregnant women should not take more than one gram of dried ginger per day and do not con- do not combine high doses of ginger with anticoagulant drugs. That means blood thinners. Okay, without medical supervision. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been 
the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy from www.doomandbloom.net. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.